What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. Journalism at the end of the day is holding powerful people to account. And if you've entered into some agreement that means that you can't ever do that, then you're not a journalist. You're a public relations person. Hello, it's Jason Concepcion, and we have another fantastic show for you on the Take Line program this week, where I'll be talking to Robert Mays of The Athletic about developments in the Brian Flores uh, case and just where we are with that right now, with that Brian Flores' lawsuit against the NFL. And Shalise Manza-Young of Yahoo Sports will talk to us about uh, access journalism in sports and uh, what are the pros, what are the cons, and then a triumphant return for Take Survivor, a star-studded Take Survivor with Waz Lambre of The Ringer, CJ Toledano of just uh, succeeding at sports media in general and follow-through media, Dave Schilling of the LA Times, and our very own Elijah Cohn will be taking part in a rollicking game of Take Survivor, all that and more. So no time to wait. Let's go ahead and get in my conversation with The Athletic's Robert Mays. The Brian Flores suit uh, is evolving. NFL coaches Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, who've been coaches for many years in the league, have joined Mr. Flores' suit in Manhattan federal court, uh, alleging racist hiring practices by the NFL. But while filling coaching and general manager vacancies, Wilkes and Horton have been coaching for many years. And Wilkes is uh, the current secondary coach with the Carolina Panthers. So now we want to welcome in uh, Robert Mays, my old compatriot, Robert Mays from the Grantland days, currently at The Athletic, where he's the host of The Athletic Football Show and an NFL writer, of course, for The Athletic, to help us put all of this into context. Robert, it's so great to see you. Uh, It's so good to see you, but I appreciate you having me on here. First, how are you? How are you doing, Robert? You know what? I'm doing great. It's like 58 degrees today in Chicago. Saw a friend for brunch. Took my dog for a walk. Like this is the time of year when we're really locking in. So I feel fantastic. How you been? I've been good. I've been good. It's crazy to think we were just like during the Grantland days. I felt like you were in L.A. and I was in New York and then I got to L.A. and then you left L.A. So it was like we were ships passing in the night. But it's great to be reunited with you uh, once again through the through the magic of uh, digital technology. I love when we were in the LA office at the ringer, I'd walk past to the commissary to get food and you were always on the patio there working on your own and just locked in. So (laughs) sitting in a beautiful space, not in that cramped tiny office in a studio that I still don't really understand why we worked there. And you were just really enjoying the outside and working hard. And I was always like, this guy, he's, he's got it. He, He is totally in tune with where he needs to be. Well, I appreciate that, Robert. Okay, let's talk about this case. Tell us about these developments with Wilkes and Horton. Uh, What are their allegations? And any thoughts about how this could uh, affect the ongoing litigation? So the the Wilkes part of this is not at all surprising in that Mm -hmm. I think 
when you're looking at the landscape of the league and how black coaches are treated differently, Steve Wilkes is a pretty good test case. And I think he's been brought up several times as we've had more theoretical discussions about this problem. Steve Wilkes was the head coach in Arizona for a single season, and then he was fired. And then Cliff Kingsbury was brought in to replace him. And when you're looking at this problem overall, I feel like Cliff Kingsbury has been kind of a lightning rod in that there are no black Cliff Kingsbury's in the NFL. Somebody who essentially failed as a college head coach, you know, losing record as a college head coach. He was hired away from an offensive coordinator job at USC to come be the Cardinals head coach. That doesn't happen for black coaches in the NFL. And I feel like that's been brought up a lot. And it's not surprising that Wilkes brought forth his case that he was a bridge coach. He was essentially hired to be fired. And you can look at this year at an example of that in Houston with David Culley and how he was brought in for a single season I think did as good of a job as he possibly could as the Texans head coach and was fired. And I think at the core of this problem is there are no black Cliff Kingsbury's and there are a lot more black Steve Wilkes's and David Culley's coaches fired after a single season than we have with white coaches on the Ray Horton side of this. The Ray Horton example is very similar to what Brian Flores brought forth when talking about the giants and that he has what he believes is evidence that before his interview even happened, Right. The team that he was interviewing with had decided on who their head coach was. And his interview was a sham in order to serve and facilitate the Rooney rule. And I think if you talk to black coaches around the league, and I, I've done this and written about this in the past, they believe this happens all the time, where you'll be brought in for a head coaching interview just to check a box for a team, just so they can satisfy the rule. It's never a serious interview. It's never something that a team is actually considering you to be a candidate. And coaches feel that all the time. And I think this is something that's been talked about behind closed doors a ton. And this lawsuit has just brought it into the light even further. Regarding Horton, uh, ESPN's Kevin Van Valkenburg had a report uh, in ESPN uh, this week that seems to me, and I'm not a I'm not a law expert, but it seems to me like a, essentially a smoking gun. It quotes former Titans head coach Mike Malarkey from a podcast that had taken place a year ago, over a year ago. And the quote from that podcast uh, is: "I've always prided myself in doing the right thing um, in this business, and I can't say that's true about everybody in this business. It's a very cutthroat business, and a lot of guys will tell you that. But uh, I allowed myself uh, at one point when I was in Tennessee uh, to get caught up in something I, I regret, and I still regret it." But uh, the ownership there, uh, Amy Adams Trunk and her family came in and, and told me I was going to be the head coach in 2016 uh, before they went through the, the Rooney rule. And so I sat there knowing I was the head coach in 16 as they went through this fake hiring process, knowing, uh, knowing a lot of the coaches that they were interviewing, knowing how much they prepared to go through those interviews, knowing that, that everything they could do and they had no chance of getting that job. That seems pretty cut and dried. Uh, Malarkey was then asked to follow up, and he essentially said, you know, everything I said in that at pod is what I said, and I stand behind it, but no further comments. It seems pretty damning. And yeah. again, I don't know about the actual legalities of it. And if you look at, again, I'm not a lawyer, and I think that's important to, to bring up here. But my understanding, and Kevin Seifer from ESPN has put it in these terms as he's done some explainers on the process, is that this lawsuit, they're trying to prove one of two things uh, as far as legal action, is that there's been desperate treatment mm-hmm. of black coaches or there's been disparate impact from a policy that currently exists in the hiring process of black coaches. And I think, I don't know how this fits into proving that, but I do think that this is as damning as it gets when you're looking for examples of how this has gone wrong and how the Rooney rule is circumvented consistently throughout the NFL. The 
people who are being accused, the uh, the GMs, the teams that are being accused in the Florida's case, have been adamant that they're not going to settle. They're not going to uh, back down against this. Uh, any comments from the the Cardinals and the Titans here after Wilkes and Horton's allegations and, the, and them joining this litigation? Pretty boilerplate PR responses from what I've seen is that you know we stand by our process. We we had a thorough search that was a wide net. And we're, we're comfortable with how we went about this and what the results eventually were from both of those teams. I think the Texans had a similar response this week when Brian Flores added him to his list of teams that were involved in the lawsuit. What's next for this? Like, I feel as if the NFL, it seems like, would like to get this, you know, out of the way as quickly as possible. At the same time, uh, as we stated, you know, it seems like uh, GMs, execs that are that are named in the suit, they they really want to fight it. So, where do we think we go from here? Uh, and and how do you think Flores will be able to, from what you know about him, balance his duties as a you know a, as a linebackers coach with the Steelers with this kind of ongoing litigation that is so serious? As far as the actual legal proceedings, my understanding is that it's a question of whether it gets to discovery because a lot of these lawsuits that have happened before mm-hmm. and legal action against the league with it's Colin Kaepernick, others have not gotten to that stage. And if it does, what that could bring, I feel like, is something that's certainly worth paying attention to. You know, on the Flores side of this and with the Steelers, I think that is another answer about where this goes from here. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, the league has tried to put even more levers into place to help this. In the last year, they just instituted a rule that requires every team to have a black offensive assistant in order to kind of fill the pipeline with more candidates, stuff like that. But we've seen, and even with the Rooney rule itself, they recently updated it where you have to include two minority candidates to satisfy the Rooney rule. And that really hasn't made a difference. This is going to be about whether people in power around the league want to intentionally hire black people, want to go not out of their way, but make a conscious decision to give more opportunities and to elevate black assistance around the NFL. And I think if you look at the Steelers, it's not an accident that Mike Tomlin is as a, when after the season was over about yeah. two weeks afterwards was the black coach in the NFL. Yep. And he gave Brian Flores a job yep. and Brian Flores is on that staff. And if you look at something that happened with the Bucks recently and how Todd Bowles is now going to be the fourth black head coach in the NFL in Tampa Bay, that's not an accident either. If you look at, what Bruce Arians wanted there mm-hmm. all along was to bring two of his black coordinators with him to that job, knowing he was eventually going to walk away and give them one of those positions. You can put as many rules in place as you want. And there are pipeline questions. There are issues with the offensive, not in terms of talent, coaching talent, but in terms of right. where a lot coaches of talent. are elevated yeah. and what positions they're elevated to. There are four black quarterback coaches in the NFL. There are four black offensive coordinators in the NFL. Two of them call plays. That makeup in a world where offensive football is a priority is going to prevent black coaches from getting head coaching jobs. And we've gotten to a place now where you have to have people who are willing to say, I want to put my black assistants in positions to succeed. I want to help elevate black coaches around the league. And if that doesn't happen, then you can create as many rules as you want and you can incentivize teams as much as you want. None of it's going to matter. You know, the thing that's interesting to me about this is uh, you're you're a one of the smartest writers about this sport that is out there. You know, you understand all, all the advanced stats that I don't understand and you write the, about them in, in a way that is really clear and engaging. Uh, I feel like I get smarter when I read your stuff. And when I think about this problem, it's like 
to your point, there are pipeline issues. There's a lot of talent there, a lot of uh, talented uh, potential black coaches, uh, defensive coordinators, offensive coordinators, et cetera, but they aren't, they aren't getting the opportunity. It feels like a GM or a team, they could like almost hire a top to bottom, almost all black coaching squad. Some of the most thoughtful and smart talent that hasn't got an opportunity yet, because to your point, these coaches aren't getting into positions, aren't getting into the pipeline. We could have a five-hour conversation about this. And how we've arrived at this point, I think there are a lot of different factors in play. And the intentionality of people in positions of power to hire black people is one of them. The amount of black GMs in the NFL and people in that room that are part of the head coach hiring process is part of it. There are now seven black GMs in the NFL. Six of them have been hired since 2020, five of them in the past two years. That is progress. That is going to be helpful. You look at, but there's so many other things in question here. And I think if you look back, one of the, the more fascinating things to me is if you look at the head coach makeup in like 2010, if you go back 12 years, there were significantly more. I want to say it was eight. I'm not sure of the exact number, but about twice as many black head coaches in the NFL then than there are now. And you can directly trace the amount of black coaches in the NFL at that point to Tony Dungy because Tony Dungy at that point had won a Super Bowl in 2006 and people were chasing Tony Dungy. Owners know what they want by what they see on TV. You know, these are people who they don't have every single bit of the football detail when it comes to making these decisions. So they make these decisions based on, oh, I want the next that guy. And Tony Dungy won a Super Bowl in 2006. And if you look at all of the black coaches in the NFL from 2006 to 2010, right in that general range, almost every single one of them, Lovey Smith, Mike Tomlin, Leslie Frazier, Raheem Morris, all of them directly worked for Tony Dungy or were on the staffs connected to those people. Now, owners around the league said, I want the next Tony Dungy, and they looked for that. And it led to quarter of the coaches in the NFL being black. Now, who do owners around the league want? They want the next Sean McVay. That's what they want. That's all they know. So there are no black Sean McVays. There are no fast-tracked, young, black offensive play callers that are those hotshot Wunderkind coaches in the NFL. And I think that's another reason that it's led to this. It's coming from five different directions, 10 different directions, 15 different directions yeah. at the exact same time. And that's why it's so difficult to solve the problem is because it's so fragmented and there's so many different streams, so many different holes that you'd have to plug to fix this. And it's why no single rule is ever going to make it work. You can have and mandate the hiring practice of having one black offensive assistant now that's a requirement is the first hiring requirement in the history of the Rooney rule. They're trying to take big swings here, but ultimately you can only do so much with the rules to make this work. He is Robert Mays, host of the athletic football show and an NFL writer for the athletic Rob. So great to see you. Good to see you too, man. I really appreciate you having me on to do this. Yeah. Thanks a lot. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends.
Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Dwayne Haskins was tragically killed over the weekend when he was hit by a truck as he was walking on a South Florida highway. That led to a announcement by ESPN's Adam Schefter, who was the first to report the news. Uh, and the story quickly took a turn from there as various figures in the sports media ecosphere reacted to uh, what many felt was the callous way that uh, Schefter characterized Mr. Haskins' career and life. Professional athletes and reporters across the country reacted quite strongly, including me, who tweeted a thing that was maybe not the nicest, uh, but also Ravens quarterback Laura Jackson, uh, Grizzlies star John Morant, Joe Hayden, and others. Lots to talk about here with the way that access journalism interacts with our idea of what real journalism is. Uh, and uh, Take Line is delighted to uh, bring in Shalise Manza Young of Yahoo Sports, who's also a professor at Emerson College, teaching reporting and sports reporting to help us unpack all the issues involved with this. Uh, Shalise, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Jason. Um, okay, so. Take us through those the circumstances and then the blowback around uh, around Schefter's tweet. Uh, and then let's talk about uh, because like access journalism is just like a fascinating beast that we all right. take part in that had but while ignoring some of like the more, uh, I think, uh, red flag type questions involved in the endeavor. So it's funny because I typically, um, for my own mental well-being, I am not on Twitter on the weekends or whatever Smart. days I have off. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I got a text message from one of my girlfriends on yesterday morning, Saturday morning, that said, oh, my gosh, did you see this? And it, it was that first tweet from Adam Schefter that's gotten so much attention. And it didn't fully register to me at first the part where he sort of dismissed Dwayne Haskins. Let me quickly read it just so people know what we're talking about. And this was later deleted by Schefter, uh, we should say in fairness to him. But here is the tweet that was uh, since deleted, quote, Dwayne Haskins a standout at Ohio State before struggling to catch on with Washington and Pittsburgh in the NFL died this morning when he got hit by a car in South Florida. Per his agent, Cedric Saunders, Haskins would have turned 25 years old on May 3rd. Um, so that is the tweet in question that places his struggles in the NFL ahead of the tragic news that he correct correct and and I think that's what you know I initially I was just focused on oh my goodness this young man died and then I reread the tweet and it's just like you know hey kids your life has no real meaning if If you you don't make the NFL yeah (laughs) right and he did make the NFL he made the NFL he was a first round draft pick you know, a lot of people said at the time he was drafted by Washington. A lot of people said at the time that it was a reach uh, for them to have taken him in the spot that they did. Um, because, of course, when you're a high first round draft pick like like he was, like Dwayne Haskins was, there's a lot of expectation that goes along with that. But to just in that moment reduce him, as you said, mention the fact that he struggled. He made it to the mountaintop. He still made right. it to the NFL. Um, but the fact that he struggled comes before the fact that this young man at not even 25 years old is dead just in the blink of an eye comes after the fact that he struggled. And, and I would like to point out while the dragging of Schefter is completely warranted, there is a man named Gil Brandt who I believe, Oh, well that is, yeah, that's a whole different, I I almost don't want to say the words, but we we can't leave Gil Brandt out of this discussion. Let's go there just for a moment, because I think that that is a thing. Gil's 
he's a former uh, Cowboys exec uh, come a sports radio personality. And this uh, took place on NFL radio on Sirius XM uh, where he's a commentator. And it, his comments were simply beyond the pale in a way that is like much easier and much more simple to vilify because they're mm-hmm. just like so awful. So go, yes, go ahead. Well, he, you know, I, I, yeah. I want to paraphrase and I think Brant said something along the lines of Haskins lived to die. Yeah. And in this two minute audio clip, he mentions that Haskins was told by Ohio state coaches, do not leave school early. Don't enter the draft, you know, before you've played some more for Ohio state, I guess Gil Brandt, maybe through the NFL invited him to the draft, but Haskins said, no, I want to have my own draft party and charge $50 a head for people to come to his draft party. Those are the things that Gil Brandt cited as living to die. If you had said to me, you know, multiple DUIs, you know, there were allegations of drug use, something like that. Okay. Living to die, I guess. But how dare you? Like there was nothing there and it was just terrible. And of course there are people who are, well, he's 90 years old and it doesn't matter. And, you know, depending on how far we want to pull this out, Gil Brandt is, he's in the hall of fame, the pro football hall of fame. He remains a pro football hall of fame selector. And he is emblematic of the larger you know, race problem in the NFL that yes. this is what you come down to that this young man, he just kept talking about how dumb he was. And if he had stayed in school longer, he wouldn't have been walking on the side of the road. And it just, it was cringy. doesn't even capture it. It was just, it was horrifying. It was truly horrifying to the point where I actually couldn't believe that the clip aired like where that no producer at any point in time was like, okay, we just got to cut hard to commercial or something and just get this off the air and stop this from happening. Right. Because it was great. It was truly unhinged stuff. Uh, Very, you know, like purely unhinged. Okay. Let's, let's think about Schefter for a second because Schefter, I think he just signed a a new five-year $45 million deal, which is a tremendously mm-hmm. rich amount of money. And ESPN certainly over the uh, over the last couple of years, three years, has really made a hard investment in this kind of access journalism with their acquisition of uh, Adrian Wojnarowski on the NBA side, who does essentially what Schefter does, but for the NBA. Um, Schefter has had various run-ins uh, mm-hmm. in which he has, I, I would say, pretty fairly gone against uh, many of the basic tenets of journalism. Uh, I think that he is just one of these tone deaf people when we talk about this particular incident. Like um, emotionally, I just think he doesn't understand how his words go out, which I think makes him a very useful uh, person for execs to leak information to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what are the issues here at play vis a vis Schefter? There are a lot. Um, It's funny you mentioned how I teach at Emerson and I do teach a sports journalism class at Emerson. And last fall, um, when I taught the class, I think he may have come up four or five times because he's Mm. been on a heck of a bad run. Very bad. Um, Yes. In terms of there was an incident in the fall um, where we found out that he reached out to Bruce Allen, who was then the president of the Washington football team and said, Hey, Mr. Editor, give this a look over uh, and let me know if I should change anything, which is, you know, for those of us who believe ourselves to be real journalists um, and, and want to do the craft as, as well as we can, that was a massive red flag. 
there was an incident where Dalvin Cook, the Minnesota Vikings running back, um, was accused. There was a situation, a domestic situation between he and a woman um, and Schefter, as he does, was just completely spilling it all from the agent side, Dalvin Cook's agent side, when if he or some assistant that he has had spent five minutes going into the, you know, Hennepin County, Minnesota court records, you could have found out that there was far more to it than this random woman just trying to break into his house. Um, There was, you know, accusations of violence by the woman on Dalvin Cook. Um, A couple of weeks ago when Deshaun Watson is (laughs) not charged um in texas right you know grand jury did not uh file criminal charges against him deshaun watson's been accused by 22 women uh in civil lawsuits and a 23rd woman who's not part of those lawsuits of sexual misconduct and sexual assault uh while he was supposed to be getting sports massages and you know Schefter, he basically i've said this before He's a stenographer. He's a, he's a $9 million a year stenographer. Agents tell him what to say, and that's what he says. Here is the Deshaun Watson tweet. This is, quote, this is why Deshaun Watson, from the beginning, welcomed a police investigation. He felt he knew that the truth would come out, and today a grand jury did not charge him of any criminal complaints. Essentially saying Deshaun Watson has been vindicated in not so and many he words. he said after the fact, because, of course, there was yet again blowback, Schefter said after the fact, well, I was just giving it to you from the agent's perspective. Then you should have said, Per, according to his agent per my da, sources da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah right yeah, yeah. because it came across as though this was adam schefter caping up for deshaun watson in this situation <laughs> yes. and that's not what you are supposed to be to be doing you know you mentioned Woj. i don't follow the nba you know as closely as i i know you love it Woj at least seems like he's remembered that the players are human beings and i think that's where a lot of this Schefter stuff, especially yesterday, comes into play on Saturday, is that whether it's because it's been a long time since he's been in a locker room and been face-to-face with some of these players and he's just working two and three cell phones at a time to be an information merchant, um, he just seems to have completely – and he's not the only one. Um, no, you know, Of I course, in- yeah, yeah. Right. I was incredibly frustrated during, you know, the Colin Kaepernick situation when it first happened to see the number of white NFL reporters who have made their careers on the backs of chronicling a league that's somewhere between 65 and 75 percent mm-hmm. black and going on Twitter or wherever they could to scream about this country allows him to make millions of dollars a year. So Schefter's not at all the only one, but he has over nine million Twitter followers as you, as we've said, makes $9 million a year. And he seems to completely, whether he's tone deaf, as you said, whether he is just plain not bright, as my friend Robert Klemko of the Washington Post said. <laughs> I tweeted on Friday uh, that, I'm paraphrasing my own tweet, but I'll, you know, just to let, just to, in, you know, in, uh, in interest of fairness, I tweeted that, uh, you know, something to the effect of, I think Adam Schefter is just like a, dumb guy. I think that's the main issue. All of which is to say, some of my followers push back saying, you know, if it was a white player, if it was Tim Tebow who had passed away, I'm pretty sure that Schefter would not have begun his tweet with a litany of his uh, career failures. And I think that that's fair. And I'm not at all saying that uh, white privilege and racial bias is not interacting in some way with Adam Schefter uh, potentially being a dummy, but I think the primary, I think the primary driver is that like, he's not the most curious man that has right. ever uh, earned a tremendously gigantic paycheck reporting on sports. And and this is the problem 
to, you know, as we talked about with access journalism, when you are as beholden to as many people as mm -hmm. he is for information, you can never be critical of anybody at any point ever. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. You know, when I covered the New England Patriots for almost a decade for two different newspapers here uh, in, in New England, and when you cover the Patriots, there is something that I call the program, and you can have this like agreement with Belichick and his right-hand man that they will feed you little bits of information. And in exchange, you can't ever really be critical of them. I would never have agreed to do something like that because for the decade that I covered them, they were very good. Um, so there wasn't really a lot to criticize them for, but that's what this is. Yeah. Journalism at the end of the day is holding powerful people to account. And if you've entered into some agreement that means that you can't ever do that, then you're not a journalist. You're, you're a public relations person. You're working ostensibly for that person. You're, you're working on their behalf. And I think that's what we get into with Adam Schefter and to some extent Woj. And a lot of the, the thing that's scary is you see so many young people that they see that 9 million, they see him everywhere. It's a tremendous amount of money. And that's what they want to do. And that's that's not journalism. You know, you, you sh you're supposed to be holding powerful people to account, whether it's in sports, politics, wherever the case may be. Let me take the devil's advocate uh, role here. Um, I guess a, a, an NFL fan, a Schefter fan, a, a sports fan might say, OK, but this is not like we're not reporting on Vladimir Putin here. You know, it's the NFL, like it's fun on the weekends. If I get some inside information about how such and such free agent landed at such and such team, uh, and that takes me behind the curtain, you know, big deal. Like who's, who's it hurting? And if, and if uh, a, a reporter is trading some access for, you know, pumping the brakes a little bit on going hard on certain people, like, is that really a big deal? It's just, it's just fun. It's just sports. What's a big deal? To some extent that is true, but then we get into situations like the Dalvin Cook situation, right. like the Deshaun Watson situation right. where there is real victims. There are yeah. real victims in these situations and you're completely minimizing, you know, you know, we have a big enough problem in this country with people not believing women. Right. And you are contributing to this idea that 22 women with remarkably similar stories in yes. the case of Deshaun Watson, this isn't one woman. This right. isn't two women. It's 22 women. And the 23rd um, who told her story to Sports Illustrated, but is not part of the lawsuit. They all have very, very similar stories. Yep. And it took 22, 23 women coming forward. And most people believe that something happened. It yes. did not rise to the level of criminality or there was not evidence enough evidence presented for him to face charges. But as I've written and as I've said, ask any woman in your life mm -hmm. and she has endured some type of sexual harassment or sexual assault that did not rise to the level of criminality, but it has stayed with her forever. Mm -hmm. So I am almost certain that he harmed women. Will he be criminally charged with that harm? No. But Adam Schefter in, you know, tweeting the way he has in the Dalvin Cook situation, th these are real things. You know, it's not as simple as Tom Brady's retiring or, yeah. you know, Bruce Arians is stepping away from coaching and, and going into the front office or whatever the, the news du jour is. And, and I would argue further on those points is for my money, if I were a fan, he's not adding context. If right. you just see a tweet that says, so-and-so has been traded 
from team A to team B, okay, why were they traded? What, tell me why, if I'm a fan of the team he's leaving, if I'm a fan of the team he's coming to, why did they want to trade him? Is his contract coming up and they don't have the salary cap to, to pay for what they're going to have to pay him? Did they draft a guy in the second round that in, had such a great training camp? He's going to take the guy's snap. So he asked, can I go somewhere else? Yeah. If you're just telling me one line, you know, those are of a certain age, those kinds of transactions used to be in the back section of the sports pages in the newspaper when we were kids. You know, if you're not adding context, I don't understand, you know, I, I want context, you know, as a beat reporter, that's what I was giving people was the Patriots did this. And let me tell you why, to the best of my knowledge, it happened. You mentioned uh, your Twitter uh, weekend breaks, which I think is a great thing to do if you have the uh, ability to do it. I, you know, for my, I built my career through social media, so I understand fully that staying engaged is a necessity for a lot of people in the, in the, the media space. Um, recently, the New York Times changed their uh, social media uh, rules saying that you know essentially the reporters don't have to don't have to be online don't have to engage that way don't have to share their stories that way anymore I, I'm wondering with your professor hat on what do you talk to your students about with regards to social media and how that can be used as a tool to amplify their work or to you know augment their work or how do you see it as a tool that works within uh, journalism I think it can be great um you know, I, I think I started in Twitter in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was just a way for, for me to build an audience, basically. Um, back then, I was at the Providence Journal. I eventually was hired by the Boston Globe. So I went from a smaller paper to a bigger paper. Um, and it was just a way for me to amplify my work. And, and if enough people are on Twitter, then other reporters in other cities, if the Patriots were playing you know, I don't know, the Texans the coming Sunday, then Texans reporters might say, oh, you know, Shalice wrote this story, whatever the case may be. And so it brings more people um, potentially to my work. Um, it's just become such a slippery slope and it's become such a toxic place largely. And it, mm -hmm. it is, it's really hard because it's where I get some of my inspiration. You know, now I'm a For columnist. Sure. Right, now I'm a columnist. I focus on race and gender in sports primarily. Um, and you know, that's where I find a lot of my ideas, but you have to be careful what you say. And initially I felt like I could show personality on Twitter in a way that I wouldn't in the newspaper because that's journalism and, yeah. and you know, I'm supposed to be nuts and bolts and, and that kind of thing. Um, but now I'm an opinion writer anyway, so it doesn't matter as much, but I think younger journalists, the game has just changed so much um, mm. because of the immediacy of Twitter, because of, you know, everyone wants to build a brand. Everyone sees Schefter and Woj and they're like, well, I want to get there. And it's like, they took a long time to yeah. get to those places. Um, and not everybody needs to have an opinion. Sometimes you have to put the, the work in. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of kids want to be Bill Simmons and it's like, well, he even changed the game a little bit too, yeah. because he made it acceptable to write from a fan perspective and be completely biased and, and don't, yeah. don't be ashamed to be biased. So it's really navigating such a funny, weird waters. You know, I, yeah. I feel lucky in a way that I've had a front row seat to all of it. You know, when I started at the newspaper, it was just the newspaper. And then there was this weird thing called blogs. And then it became, oh, we're publishing the paper online first. And some people are going to get the print section, but a lot more people get it online. And Twitter comes in play and, and it's the immediacy of it. And I think people have just forgotten that 
the story's the thing, the relationships are the thing. And in, in a lot of ways to bring it full circle with our conversation, it is, act, we're all access journalists in a way because we need people to give us access to their lives, to their thoughts, to data, whatever it is to write our stories. It's just a journalist has to, at the end of the day, regardless of the relationship you have with somebody say, look, if you screw up, yeah. I have to write that you screwed up because you screwed up. Right. You know, I can't cover for you. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people have forgotten, you know, and in the case of like Schefter, he's so beholden to so many people to keep that $9 million a year job <laughs> that you can't be critical of any agent, any front office person, any player. And the, you know, what you leave in your wake is women who are potentially, you know, sexually yeah. assaulted by a quarterback. Shalise Manza Young is a Yahoo sports columnist who has covered the Patriots for a decade. She teaches sports and reporting at Emerson College, where she's been a member of the faculty since 2016. Shalise, thank you so much for joining Take Line. Thanks, Jason. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. for Take Survivor, the game where only the strongest take wins. Joining us on the Take Survivor Island today, he's a culture and NBA writer for TheRigger.com. What a great website. He's also a co-host of the Count the Things podcast. He is Wazne Lambray. Waz, how are you? I'm good, man. It's, it feels amazing to be on this show as I was the cheap replacement for Jason Concepcion. Is that in your contract? <laughs> Vaguely no, 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 NBA. Hold on. You were, <laughs> I'm, you, I'm a, I'm a staff writer, but I've never written a damn thing for the website. <laughs> <laughs> you are not you are not the cheap replacement. It's you and four other people. It took four <laughs> to replace me. And up next is the writer, director, founder of Follow Through LA, uh, a writer for television for various other screens. He is the super funny CJ Toledano, one of the great Filipinos at media. CJ, how are you? I'm great. Well, so I don't know how I didn't get in contention to replace Jason. Did you apply? That would have been just a straight up. Larry, I thought it was that's a straight up transaction. <laughs> they had four people trying to replace Jason. I'm right there. But hey, listen. Uh, he is a contributor writer for the LA Times, folks. The LA Times, it's big time, baby, and the New Yorker. For anybody that's drinking a cup of tea with their pinky out, you're probably reading a Dave Schilling column right now. He is the wonderfully dressed <laughs> David Schilling. David, David how are you? David is what you? my mother calls me. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm sorry. Dave. When I see it. If you Google David okay, Schilling, you Dave? get like an Air Force captain or something. You have to Google <laughs> Dave Schilling to get me. <laughs> da excuse me. Dave. He is Dave Thank you. Schilling. 
and he is finally the director of video development at Crooked Media, former producer on this very podcast, a many-time contestant of the Take Line Island, Take Line Survivor Island. He is Elijah Cohen, Elijah. Jason, I'm great. It's great to be back. And I got to say, looking at this segment on Fresh Eyes, no one ever asked how you are. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing, I'm uh, hanging on by a thread. Let's move on. Here's how this game works. We've got three rounds, three prompts. First round, I will ask the question. Their contestants will give their takes. And then everybody here, including our uh, super producer, Zuri, will then vote on who had the worst take, and that person will be ejected for the island. We repeat that for round two. But, of course, our ejectees remain part of the voting pool, and they will also vote on whose take be sucking. And then we get to the third round, at which point it is a head-to-head matchup. Uh, to see who takes the uh, the Survivor crown. We'll be voting for the winner. Is everybody ready? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Uh, let's start with our first prompt. What is the best signifier of victory? Is it the master's green jacket? Is it a trophy? Is it a ring? Is, that, is it that big, like, serving plate they give you at Wimbledon? What is the best way to signify victory? Let's start with you, Elijah Cohn. Elijah, what's the best way to commemorate a championship, a victory, what have you? I mean, in the spirit of the day, I'm going to have to go with the green jacket of the Masters. It is, as far as I know, the only wearable trophy. It's definitely the most iconic. You can walk into a room full of other professionals wearing that thing casually, and it's like a huge flex that doesn't seem like a huge flex. You don't have to hoist it anywhere. It's nice that the last winner puts it on you. It's a classic, the green jacket <laughs> of the Masters. Elijah Cohn says the green jacket, wearable. And when, when you say wearable, I think you mean wearable like in an everyday context. Like you can't just walk out with like the intercontinental belt like on. <laughs> yeah. Go to, right? You like, can't is that if what you're Rashid Wallace. <laughs> right, you can't. That's what you're saying. Okay. Let's, uh, up next, uh, Dave, Dave Schilling. Dave, what is the best uh, way to commemorate victory? You cued me up perfectly. This is a wearable. This is something that signifies excellence. Let's go. The World Heavyweight (laughs) Championship belt. First of all, this is from my fantasy football league. And uh, the nameplate says Mr. (laughs) Ass, a wrestler, which was my team name. There's gold, rubies, diamonds. You wear it like a a jacket, but it's just like a trophy. And that it is gorgeous. It's expensive. It is gaudy. I could wear that to a board meeting. I could wear that to the beach, just my Speedo and a championship belt. No one's going to stop me from doing that because guess what? They know I'm the champ. Uh, I love it, Dave. Uh, let's go to CJ. CJ, what's the best way to signify victory, a championship? Well, so I'm definitely not going to go Masters because I had to have my white lady Indianapolis wife explain to me how golf works. So, like, <laughs> if I'm not even – I'm 35-year-old who's worked in sports for a decade. I was like, how – is this a new course? What's going on? <laughs> but So definitely not going to Green Jacket. I could buy that at J. Crew. Uh, so not that significant. So I will say – and I'm a bootleg connoisseur. I love not it. official, you know. So I'm thinking about other merch, other things that people are wearing – to celebrate, I'm gonna go with the Jeff Hamilton jacket because we're seeing that, you know, starting in the 90s with Jordan, the Bulls, and then we got Kobe back to back, just the iconic holding that trophy in the uh, in the shower in the locker room. 
to me, that's you've done it. You're at the top of Everest and you've won your championship. So I'm going to go Jeff Hamilton, a guy who didn't know what the NBA was when he entered fashion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, finally, Waz, Waz, what's the best way to commemorate a championship? Man, I can't believe I got the last pick and I got to pick this. And to me, it's, it's definitely the ring. One, because it's gaudy and it's gold and I'm black, like this is actually my culture. So I can do this every day. <laughs> There's certain people, you can't rock a ring like that all over the place. But I'm not talking about Run DMC, Dookie Gold Chains, all of that. I'm taking it back to Mansa Musa. Dave, I'm taking it back centuries. We've been doing this gaudy jewelry stuff. So for me... Again, as you guys can tell, I'm black. I got to go with the big old gaudy championship ring because I'm rocking it every day. And I'm reminding you that I am number one. I'm the champion and I came to stunt on your ass. You know what else is gaudy? A championship belt. <laughs> you seen The Rock? He's black. He, he wears one all the time. I love the energy. Let's go to the voting, folks. Are you ready? We are going to the voting round. So everybody here, uh, DM me directly your votes for who you believe had the worst take in the opening round of this uh, yet another <laughs> thrilling episode of Take Survivor. Who will it be? Will it be Elijah Cohn who says, man, I, I just want the guy who I vanquished to put my clothes on for me. I want him to put, my, <laughs> I want him to put the jacket on my shoulders. Will it be Dave who says the championship belt? Yeah, you can go. You can go anywhere with it. You can drive with it. You can go ahead and get in the shower with it. You go to a meeting with a with a two foot wide gold encrusted diamond and ruby encrusted championship belt or will be CJ who said man you know Jeff Hamilton he defined the look of somebody who wanted to wear a jacket that had all 30 NBA team logos on it and who and it's iconic and you know you are a champion when you wear that leather and uh, and cotton jacket that has so many colors in it that you actually have a seizure or will it be Waz who says Let's take it back to the to the beginnings of human culture. Yes. It, it's about jewels. It's about jewelry. It's about uh, diamonds. It's about gold. It's about all that beautiful shit that you wear on your body to signify that you are elite, that you are special. Votes are coming in now. And let's see. We have uh, one vote for Elijah. Uh. We have one vote for CJ. We have another vote mm -mm. for Elijah. Another vote for CJ. It's 2-2. Two, 2, two Elijah, 2 CJ. And then the final vote for Waz, folks, where you have a runoff. Oh, boy. Here's how this works. Everybody can vote again, but you can only vote for either CJ or Elijah to be voted off the island. Uh, send me your votes now. Send me your votes now. It's either CJ or Elijah. Uh, and here we go. This is very exciting, folks. Uh, and at a score, <laughs> of, uh, at a score, <laughs> at a score <laughs> of three. Hey, Waz, you're my best friend. You're my best friend. Why we're laughing is because Waz sent us his vote to everyone. Everyone. But it's okay because he's done. For the, at a vote of four to one, uh, Elijah, you have been uh, eliminated from the island, been kicked off the island in round one. Uh, what do you have to say? Well, much like the Masters, me getting eliminated early and take Survivor is a tradition unlike any other. <laughs> <laughs> Back here. Elijah, I will, I will say this, though. 
I, I voted for CJ first. But his pick was so horrible, I said, I want him to keep on going. So I'm voting for Elijah this time. Entertainment. It's for the entertainment. I understand. I appreciate the gamesmanship. Let's go to round two. Here we go. Round two. We are uh, taping this on a Sunday. It is the final day of the NBA regular season. We're moving into the uh, play-in portion of the playoffs. Uh, the play-in, this will be the uh, second year of the play-in, the uh, the new mini-tournament that the NBA put in in order to curb tanking uh, late in the season, uh, create some excitement. Uh, there's also talk of a mid-season tournament. Adam Silver's been talking about that for many years. Uh, recently, uh, talk about that as kind of like kicked up to another level. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, there's been conversations about how there's uh, just too many games in the NBA regular season, and that's been going on for 10, 20 years, a long time. All of which is to say, how do you fix it? What is the, how do we fix the NBA season, the structure of it? Do we go to less games? Do we go to a Premier League type, every game counts and you get three points for a victory type structure? What do we do? How do we fix the NBA season? Let's start with you, Waz. Waz, how do we fix the NBA season? I think, especially as it pertains to tanking, I think the best thing would be to get rid of the draft, period. Um, and not make it a straight-up uh, free-for-all in the sense that rookies get to go wherever they want to. But I think every team should get a certain allotted amount of money that they can give to a rookie. If you say, I want to use all of my money on Chet Holmgren, or I want to break it down into three, because I got three guys that I think are sleepers or whatever, and you interview them, and you court them, and they court you back, and people choose who the hell they want. And you show how much... You want the person by how much you're willing, how much of your resources you're willing to to give to them, et cetera, et cetera. All this draft crap where we got to pretend that it's great that Orlando sucks for the 70th year in a row and they get to ruin some next young guy's career because they've been incompetent for the last decade plus. I don't understand how this makes any sense. It's un-American. It's ridiculous. Get rid of the draft right now. Vivek Renadive uh, somewhere in Sacramento grabbing his stomach as he's suddenly <laughs> struck by strange pains in his liver. CJ, uh, how do we fix the NBA season? I think in the play-in, now we're about to miss LeBron. We're about to miss some superstars in the playoff. But the people who people tune in to watch. So I'm thinking, let's put the remaining NBA superstars on one of these playing teams. Let's get this. LeBron on the <laughs> Let's get Dame on the Pelicans. Let's get Julius Randle on the Hawks. Let's really thank you for that. Nuts. I really appreciate you know, that. that a good <laughs> I really appreciate. Thank you, CJ. For, I really, really appreciate that. Uh, that kind of like bald faced uh, 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 flower that you laid at my uh, feet here. But continue. Sorry. No, I mean that's really all I got. Let's um, you know, let's put Jalen Green also on the mix. Uh, just gonna double down on. <laughs> Giving everything to, to Jason here. But I, I miss these superstars. Let's continue. It's a superstar league. Let's continue to protect them. I agree. Let's continue to give them the exposure. Um, that, that's my recommendation. I love it. If we can have more superstars in our life, uh, certainly in the postseason, uh, I think that that's great. Let's move on now to Dave Schilling. Dave, how do we fix the NBA season? How do we make it better? I agree completely with CJ. You want to have the superstars in, in the playoffs. You want to have everybody get a chance to show what they can do. But don't do this allocation thing where now you're putting, like, LeBron on, you know, the Spurs or something. That's that's absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. Let's scrap the playoffs completely as they are now. 
and go to an NCAA-style single elimination tournament all 30 wow. teams play. You got a 130 wow. upset possibility. Imagine some team gets hot. Some garbage franchise like the Pelicans just turns yes. it on. Or like the Lakers, right? Let's say LeBron and AD could get healthy right? just for a couple weeks. We're good. We're, we're the champion, even though we barely won 30 games. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't everybody love that? That is actually a That's really hotness. tantalizing idea, but let's find out. Let's find out what everybody here thinks, including the recently eliminated Elijah and our producer Zuri. Let's go to the voting. Who will be the second person eliminated from Take Survivor today? Will it be Wazi says no draft? How about how about like any other job interview where if you're interviewing job uh, talented prospective job candidates, you offer them a higher salary, better benefits, a nice car, like a bag of money. You know, buried in the park somewhere it's to good get enough for Goldman cap. Sachs, Jason. Yeah, like how can, how can <laughs> why why not that? Or will it be CJ who says, "Listen, we need to get the superstars in. Let's put all the superstars on a play-in team and let's just like have fun with it. Let's just like do it for the ratings." You know, Adam Silver is legitimately like rocked up thinking about potentially having LeBron in the postseason right now and he doesn't have to deal with ABC and his broadcast partners crying about like the, the lack of star power and he would love that or will it be Dave Schilling who says like CJ has correctly diagnosed the problem but he's misdiagnosed the cure here is what it is May Madness one shining moment for the NBA and we just go all 30 teams single E-limb in May into June. Wouldn't that be fantastic? It would be a gambler's dream. Votes are coming in now. And, oh, my God, it has happened again, folks. <laughs> By a score of two to two, Dave and Waz are tied. So here we go again, everybody. Everybody gets to vote again, right? Everybody, including everybody is us? voting once again, again, including, Amazing. yes, voting again, either for Waz or Dave. Incredible. He's voting for either Waz or Dave. Waz, I voted for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just let you know. Straight up. Wow. What a gut punch. Couldn't see that one coming. I was going to stab you in the front. You know what I mean? That's That's how I do it. Uh, but I, I, I really do love how tight it's been. Uh, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that has almost destroyed American democracy, but we're dealing with it well. Uh, by a margin of three to one, Dave, you have been eliminated from uh, oh, <laughs> Explain yourselves. Let's do it. What's the problem? Huh? I'm sorry. A single elimination I, 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 I don't know you? what happened, Dave. Uh, I'm as surprised as you, but it did happen, and that brings us to our final and round. One vote was for you. Uh, first a divorce, now this, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> the exciting culmination of Take Survivor, and the final prompt is this. <laughs> Who should win NBA MVP this season? It is by any by any measure essentially a three-player race. You have uh, Nikola Jokic, the reigning MVP, who uh, you know in the eyes of some is is merely the nerds pick. You have Joel Embiid, who almost single-handedly lifted uh, the Philadelphia 76ers through the season until their recent acquisition of the uh, increasingly washed James Harden. 
or uh, and then it's of course uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, the star of the Milwaukee Bucks, who has previously won the w- award as well. Those are probably the three uh, the three leading candidates for the MVP award. But could it be somebody else? Who should win NBA MVP? CJ, let's start with you. Who should win NBA MVP? Okay, let's break this down on how this award really works. It's storylines, right? You know, we can go numbers all day. And you know what? Embiid leads those. Number one center in most of those categories. Defensive points, obviously, scoring title. Also, dysfunctional Philly team that only added James Harden to try to fix it, which for a week we were like, (laughs) I think they did it. But Embiid still coming out on top. And let's let's take a look at the storyline aspect. Joel Embiid has overcome his junk food addiction. He did. He He really did. His his Rick and Morty addiction to play basketball at all levels necessary uh, needed to get far in the playoffs, which I think they they have a real chance here if James Harden and and Embiid in that bench sort of click. I'm going to go with Embiid. They've never hovered below fourth, I don't think. Um, One through four, whatever, stacked east, Embiid all the way. Screw the numbers. I hate math. Don't care about Jokic. Hate numbers as well. I love the take. Let's go to Waz. Waz, who should win NBA MVP? Since CJ hates numbers so much, I'm going to go with this angle. Can a white man get a leg up in today's society? (laughs) God damn, please. Nikola Jokic is the MVP. We need to get this racial essentialism out of our MVP race. We need to get it out of our politics, Jason. We Listen, Nikola Jokic, who's going to be the only two-time Serbian MVP, is the Katanji Brown of Serbian basketball hoops, y'all. Let's get the numbers out of it. Let's stop making it about color. Let's let the, let's give the white man a chance in the black man's sport, in the city game. Jason, this man, this is a man from the countryside That's right. of Serbia. He's not even from Belgrade. He's not even from the city part. This man, he's an outsider. And let him get the MVP is better for society. It's better for basketball <laughs> as a whole. Give the white man a chance uh, for once, please. For once. Even if he's Eastern European, give him a shot. Can we clip uh, that and put yeah, that right. out with no context? <laughs> yeah, no context. <laughs> All right, let's go to the voting. I have to remind everybody, we're voting for the winner here, okay? So Zuri, Elijah, David, voting for the winner. Who will the winner be? Will it be? Was who says of of Nikola Jokic still he rises? Uh, <laughs> can we let a can we let a white European man finally succeed in this world? Will it happen? Will we allow that to happen? Or will it be CJ who says, "Listen, it's Joel Embiid in the in the battle, the eternal battle of storylines versus stats." Joel Embiid is the guy with the full complement of both sides. He has the storylines and the stats. And he's carrying uh, James Harden's uh, bloated body (laughs) across the finish line. The votes are coming in now. And folks, oh, it is an exciting, it's an exciting battle here. Okay. Uh, One vote for Waz. One vote for CJ. Another vote for Waz. Another vote for CJ. We're tied again. And then the final vote and the deciding vote is for our winner of Take Survivor today, Sunday, April 10th, Waz. Waz, you no! are the champion. <laughs> Waz, what do you have to say? 
Thank you, thank you. I want to thank everybody back <laughs> in um, East Flatbush, Brooklyn, as well as Queens Village, New York. I couldn't have done it without all you people back over there. And I also want to thank Jason Concepcion for paving the way for loudmouth New Yorkers. Let's go. In this media thing. I love you, bro, for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. East 19th and Cortell, you stand up. Let's go. Let's go. That has been Take Survivor. (laughs) See you next time. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out, folks. Bye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Drawer. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. 